Thank you for downloading this sermon from Christ the Word Church. If you would like more information on how Christ the Word is reaching, raising, and teaching generations in Northwest Ohio and Southeast Michigan, please visit us online at ChristTheWord.com. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, At different stages of my life, I've had certain recurring nightmares. As a boy, my nightmare was that I would get on the school bus and I would still have my pajamas on. After getting my driver's license, I would have this nightmare where I was driving in my car, someone was chasing me in, in their car, and eventually, although I grew up in an area that had very flat land, I would end up on a road on a huge mountain. And invariably, I would drive off the side of that mountain. As the car went over, crashing to the bottom, I would always wake up before the car crashed. As a young adult, my nightmares turned to a realization that I was suddenly placed in finals week in college, and I'd not attended any of the classes. I didn't know any of the material. Now I had to take an exam. Uh, This morning is somewhat similar to the nightmares I've had as an older man, where I prepare to teach or prepare to do some public speaking, and I show up and virtually no one else comes to hear me speak. I'm trusting that there are people on the cameras right now who can see me and can hear me. Uh, Over the past few weeks, I've used the word surreal probably more than any other time in my life. And uh, this, this would certainly fit into that category of being surreal as well. Our passage this morning is uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And as others have said this morning, while we are separated in our corporate worship today, we must take it as seriously as we would if we were all together in this sanctuary. So even for you in your homes, as well as for those of you who are here in the sanctuary, I would ask that we stand for the reading of God's word. And this is his word, and it's eternally true. Now as to the times and the epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness, so let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ." Who died for us. So whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another, just as you also are doing. But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction, and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Live in peace with one another. We urge you, brethren, Admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. See that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the Spirit. 
Do not despise prophetic utterances, but examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. Brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. I adjure you by the Lord to have this letter read to all the brethren. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. And this is the word of the Lord. At home and in the sanctuary, please be seated. Let's pray. Father, I pray that your spirit fill all of us this morning. While we are away from each other in body, Lord, may we feel as a church body connected to each other and to you in a special way this morning. Lord, I pray that you'd guard my heart, my lips, and that everything I would say would be honoring to you this morning. Father, I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, Paul's first letter to the church at Thessalonica is very likely his first letter to any church. It was written around 50 AD, and his letter to the Galatians may have been written about the same time. It's unclear which one was written first and which one was written second. It was composed after not only Paul had gone to this church and and left, but he also sent Timothy to this church, and Timothy came back and gave a report on how the church was doing. Overall, it was a very good report. In the chapter I just read, which is the last chapter in the book, um, Paul provides uh, the church with teaching around the second coming of Christ and then also hits them with some rapid-fire exhortations. I'd like to cover for just a few minutes each each of those sections this morning. In verse 1, Paul refers to the times and the epochs. Now, I just want to say quickly, the word E-P-O-C-H can be pronounced either epoch or epic. In fact, in our country, it's most likely pronounced epic. But so I don't confuse it with the word spelled E-P-I-C. I'm going to use the United Kingdom pronunciation of epoch for the rest of the sermon. So in verse 1, Paul refers to times and he refers to epochs. We often talk about the times. Uh, around the time I was born, Bob Dylan was singing that the times, they are changing. But what is an epoch? An epoch is a period of time marked by certain circumstances. I believe that we can usually discern the times in real time, but it's only with the benefit of hindsight that we can go back and say from this time to this time was an epoch. Um, Epochs are typically bookended by wild, traumatic events. The times changed for us just a few weeks ago. The question remains, is this the beginning of a new epoch? Can you think of some traumatic, wild events from our history? Depending on your age, you'll you'll have at least a few in mind. Let me work backwards in time from the most current back in time and see if a few of these ring a bell for you. Most recently, I think of the city of Toledo water crisis. On on Saturday, August 2nd, 2014, at about 2 in the morning, I received an alert on my phone saying that all of the water that the city of Toledo water department had pushed through our pipes, we couldn't drink it couldn't cook with it. We weren't even supposed to touch it. It was the initial warning. A toxin was being produced by algae in Lake Erie, and it made the water unsafe for us. Now, there was a mad dash by just about everyone to buy bottled water, and it was a difficult few days, but I doubt that this would rise to the level of starting a new epoch. 
How about the great Northeast blackout? On August 14th, 2003, at about 4 p.m., I was sitting in an office with no windows when all the lights went out. I soon learned that an entire corridor of the Northeast United States and part of Canada had gone without power. Now, we later learned that it was a branch on a tree in Northeast Ohio that had touched a wire and started a great chain reaction. I remember this particular blackout because we as a church were heading on our first men's canoe trip to northern Michigan. And as we drove north on US 23, there was no ice, there was no gasoline in any of the gas stations because people needed gasoline for generators and ice because their refrigerators weren't working. Now, a few trees got trimmed, but other than that, I'm not sure our lives changed that much. I'm not sure that is really the definition of a new epoch. Now, on September 11, 2001, I was sitting in that same office when a colleague came to me and asked if I knew what was happening. This is in a day before text messages, before push notifications, uh, before social media. I had no idea what she was talking about. I learned that two planes had hit the two towers at the World Trade Center. I turned on a radio and then a television, and I saw as a plane crashed into the Pentagon, and then as a plane crashed to the ground near Pittsburgh. I watched the two towers fall to the ground. Many will say that September 11th marked the end of an epoch that started right around the time the Berlin Wall fell in 1989. With the powerful Soviet Union being dismantled, as a country, we thought we didn't have any enemies. September 11th reminded us that we did have enemies, essentially ending this big party that was the 1990s. Before I was born, on November 22nd, 1963, Lee Harvey Oswald sat perched in a window in a downtown building in Dallas and fired three shots at President Kennedy. Two of those shots hit the president and killed him almost instantly. Kennedy's assassination ended an epoch that started with the Japanese surrendering at the end of World War II in 1945. After a decade of Great Depression and four years of war, America was ready to celebrate. The late 40s, the 50s, and the early 60s uh, were in general a time of prosperity and relatively little conflict in our country. Those alive at the time described a palpable change in our country after Kennedy was assassinated, ushering in an era marked with conflict and economic challenge. On December 7, 1941, the Japanese launched a surprise attack on the U.S. naval base at Pearl Harbor. This event marked our country's entry into World War II. 2,300 people plus were killed that day. Perhaps we can consider Pearl Harbor as the midway point in that epoch that began with the stock market crashing in October 1929, starting the Depression, and then ending with that Japanese surrender at the end of World War II. Let's fast forward to current times. While many of us were celebrating New Year's Eve just a few months ago, but now it seems like years ago to us, this past New Year's Eve, Chinese authorities were reaching out to the World Health Organization to report pneumonia cases in Wuhan City. On January 7th, China identified a new coronavirus as the source of the outbreak. On January 9th, it was reported that a 61-year-old man with other illnesses was the first to die from COVID-19. By January 16th, the first case was reported outside of China. Now, unlike a few of the events further back in history that I just described, we didn't have that cataclysmic moment necessarily where we knew where we were and who we were talking to when we found out about this. We watched the storm clouds build slowly on the horizon. 
we remembered things like SARS, H1N1, swine flu. And we remember very little about anybody we know being infected with those bugs. COVID-19 seemed like another false alarm on the list until it wasn't. Have we just experienced an epoch-ending, and epoch-beginning moment with the arrival of COVID-19? Periods of time, we have seen great prosperity coupled simultaneously with spiritual decay. We've seen homosexuality not only accepted, but celebrated. This thinking has even infiltrated the church, causing us to leave our denomination. Um, Perhaps more accurately, we could say that our denomination left us. Will the great loss of wealth and personal freedom we have all experienced in recent weeks spark the next great awakening? We, We don't know. Only God knows, although we can certainly pray for it. Paul reminds the Thessalonian church that Jesus will return. He calls it the day of the Lord. And it'll come like a thief in the night. In other words, just as a thief has an element of surprise, so the Lord chooses not to reveal to us the date of Christ's return. When I was in my 20s, radar detectors were very popular. The principle behind the device was it revealed to you where a hidden police officer was monitoring the speed of your vehicle so that you only had to drive the speed limit when you knew he was there. The goal here was to focus the preparation on knowing when to slow down. Of course, the alternative was to be prepared and always be driving the speed limit. Paul is clearly stating to the church that there is no radar detector to speak of Christ's return. They and we must always be ready. The Department of Homeland Security can deploy TSA agents and airports to catch terrorists attempting to hijack planes. Secret Service can equip the president with armored vehicles and can sweep an area before that limousine drives through. A naval base can have vigilant patrols monitoring for a surprise attack. But the child of God must simply be always prepared. So, how do you know if you're really prepared? Here's a diagnostic question for you. What have you hungered for in the past two weeks? Before you answer, let's look at Paul's words to another church, the Philippian church. I'm reading from Philippians 3. Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk, of whom I often told you, and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite. Again, whose God, small g, is their appetite. And whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, their God, small g, is their appetite. What have you hungered for in the past two weeks? Toilet paper? Peanut butter? Hand soap? Alcohol, face masks, hand sanitizer, guns, more ammunition for your guns. I'm not saying that you don't need these things, at least some of them. Jesus said, don't worry what we'll eat or what we'll drink or what we will, will we wear for clothing. For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you. When it comes to the basic necessities of food, shelter, and clothing, 
The Lord knows you need these things. But in this passage, we are told that, that it's clear that acknowledging that there are real needs we have and not being worried about them can and should go hand in hand. Let's make sure that we have our perspective during this very trying time. Will your money be your provider? Or will your God, who gave you that money, be your provider? Will your protection come from handguns? Or from the Lord who will never leave you nor forsake you? Whether in times of trial or in times of relative ease, we should never want anything or anyone more than we want Jesus. We were all given an opportunity to gauge our hunger in these past weeks. Was your God, small g, one of the things of this world? Or did you simply turn to a holy God and pray for protection, pray for wisdom, pray for provision, pray for comfort, and pray for courage? One more time, what have you hungered for in the past two weeks? You may think that the last several days were terrifying, and in many ways they were. Both believer and non-believer lost money in the stock market. The restaurant dining rooms are closed both to the child of God and to the atheist. But there's a day of judgment coming, one that may start before I finish this sermon or that may come a thousand years from now. On that terrifying day, there will be sheep and goats. There will be those on the right and those on the left of the throne. One group will be called to inherit the kingdom prepared for them. The other will be told to depart into an eternal fire prepared for devils and his angels, the devil and his angels. Where will you go? To what or to whom do you cling in the storm? Earlier I mentioned that there's a firestorm of exhortations in this passage from Paul. He pens this letter after visiting the church and then after sending Timothy to check on the church and then come back to him. We can assume that Timothy's report was a verbal report and that Paul wrote this letter on whatever the equivalent of paper was at that time, probably some sort of parchment. The sermons that come from this pulpit in the weeks and perhaps months to come are somewhat like Paul's letters to the churches. They will come after a season when he was with them face to face, but is now separated and relying on a form of communication best, sort, best suited to the situation. Kind of sounds familiar. Paul would likely be astounded to see the technology around us here this morning that we have at our disposal during this pandemic. We worship corporately this morning, but separated. We have text messages, we have FaceTime, we have other forms of video conferencing, we have email, but it's really not the same, is it? Paul often spoke of his desire to be with those to whom he was writing. In his next letter to the church at Thessalonica, he wrote, But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short while, in person, not in spirit, were all the more eager with great desire to see your face. For we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, and yet Satan hindered us. For who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus that is coming? For you are our glory and our joy. Paul's words are the words of the leaders, Christ the Word Church. We miss you, but our desire remains the same. We, sh- we desire to shepherd a flock of believers who will all be directed to the right of the great throne on Judgment Day. We love you and are striving to continue our care for you under difficult circumstances. This is new for all of us. 
So to finish this morning, I'd like to simply follow along with Paul's exhortations to the church and do the same with you. Now, verse 11 calls us to encourage and build up one another. This looks a little different during a pandemic, doesn't it? While we're inclined to look inward during times like this, I call on you and I call on me to consider those in the church who need encouragement. Many were dealing with significant issues before this trial, financial issues, issues in relationships, issues with their health. Who needs a phone call, a text, or if appropriate, a quick visit? Does anyone need help with the technology to stream these services into their home? Can you invite someone over on Sunday morning, keeping the count under 10, to worship with you? Now verses 12 and 13 call the church to esteem those who are working hard in their care. Allow me to give you an illustration. Uh, Last Monday, your senior pastor participated in an elder board meeting from his hospital bed via video conference. I'm sure that he doesn't want me to mention this. From working with Pastor David for 17 years, I can tell you that this is the norm. Any personal challenges he faces take a back seat to his care for the flock. He was asking me how my job was affected by the coronavirus outbreak even while he was lying in bed, unbeknownst to me during that part of the conversation and being prepared for surgery. Now verse 14 calls us to admonish the unruly. If you're home with your kids, you probably have already had to do this in the past week. Children, children, even ones who are not paying attention right now at home, are you listening to your parents? Verse 14 also calls us to encourage the faint-hearted and help the weak. Again, are you thinking of those in our midst who may need more help at this time? Could your children channel some of that home-from-school energy and use it to assist with preparing a meal, raking a yard, or coloring a picture for someone who's stuck at home? And just about all of us are stuck at home. Verse 14 calls us to be patient with everyone. How hard has it been to be patient this week? I've found it difficult at times. Our routines have changed, there's more uncertainty, and we're packed into tighter quarters together. Remember how patient a holy God has been with you as you endeavor to be patient with others. Verse 15 has us on the lookout for revenge in our homes. Scripture says that vengeance is reserved for God. Perhaps spending more time together as a family will reveal to you that there's more revenge in your home than you knew about. Now's the time to stomp that out. Verse 16 is simple. Rejoice always. Keyword there is, well, keyword is rejoice and the keyword's always. They're both keywords. Not only when your 401k is on the rise are you to rejoice. Not only when there's toilet paper on the shelf in the grocery store are you to rejoice. Not only when your boss gives you all the hours that you want are you to rejoice. Not only when you feel like it. Rejoicing accurately reflects your position or re- Rejoicing accurately reflects your position as a child of God and forcefully reminds you and others of this position. Everyone, I want you to rejoice loudly right now. Praise Praise the Lord. Lord. At home and in the sanctuary, rejoice now. Praise Praise the Lord. All right, in your home right now, you either had loud rejoicing or awkward silence. You know which it was. Verse 17 says, pray without ceasing. The King James Bible says that the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. The NIV says that the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. 
are you praying in a way that expects powerful and effective results? Are you praying for the vulnerable in your midst? Are you praying for repentance in our nation? Are you praying enough? The answer is no, unless you're always praying. Verse 18 says, in everything give thanks. This verse completes the trifecta of superlatives. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks. Are you thankful? Did you wake up this morning mourning the things that you've lost the past two weeks? Or did you wake up this morning thanking God for everything he's given you? Verse 19 warns us not to quench the spirit. For this verse, John Calvin says the following, it is the spirit's work to illumine our understanding. It is right to say that we quench him and put out his fire when we make his grace to be without fruit. People are guilty of quenching the spirit when instead of fanning the flames of their spiritual life more and more as they should, they make God's gifts void through neglect. End of quote. Our sanctification involves work on our part. Are you sensitive to the Spirit's work in your life? And are you exercising faith to build upon this work? I'll end this morning with verses 23 and 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. Trying times often present the most fertile ground for the child of God to be sanctified. While Paul had many ways he could describe our Heavenly Father here, he chooses to call him the God of peace. Our Lord is the God of peace, and the child of God should have that peace during times of trial.